Welcome to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, as I like to call it, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Hey, thanks to our sponsors, including our anchor sponsor, Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Central Iowa's premier good food store. Gateway brings together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Marketing Cafe. Hey, so a quick shout-out, speaking of culture, to the Des Moines Irish Session for providing our bumper music. Uh, full disclosure, I am a participant in this motley crew of traditional musicians, and we will be performing at the Weeding Theater in Toledo. Not Ohio, Toledo, Iowa. Yes, there is one, Toledo, Iowa, uh, this coming Saturday. So uh, here's a book I imagine some people would love to ban. It's called Am I Too Old to Save the Planet? The uh, uh, subtext reads... A Boomer's Guide to Climate Action, How America's Most Promising Generation Allowed Climate Change to Become a Planetary Emergency, and What to Do About It Now. Lawrence McDonald is the author, and he's, uh, he's a former foreign correspondent and vice president of the World Resources Institute. Uh, in his book, uh, Lawrence shares his journey to becoming a passionate climate activist. Uh, the book is packed with practical advice and it's an invitation to Lawrence's fellow baby boomers to join the growing global movement to save the planet. Uh, Lawrence, welcome to the program. Um, Ed, thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to have a chance to speak with you and with your listeners. Yeah, well, good to have you. And you're, uh, you're joining us from, I believe, Virginia, correct? Just across the river from the nation's capital in okay. Arlington, Virginia. Okay, and we talked about Virginia on the, in the program last week because of some... Um, some unexpected uh, political races and the, the, how the election turned out there was fairly interesting. And I imagine there's still a bit of a buzz in your neck of the woods because of uh, how the legislature turned out. Lots of us wrote postcards and, and knocked on doors and uh, were, uh, of course, I don't know if I can express a partisan view, but we're very happy that the uh, Democrats, I'm personally very happy that the Democrats not only hung on to the Senate, but also took the lower house. Uh, we still have a Republican governor, but um, his ability to, including on climate, his ability to uh, gut the progress we made under the previous governor will now be considerably restricted. Okay, interesting. So um, your background, you, I mentioned that you were involved with the World Resources Institute. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, um, WRI is um, really the world's largest environmental think and do tank, about 1,600 people, um, mostly outside the United States in the big uh, developing uh, country markets, Brazil, India, uh, Mexico, Africa, China. And um, we conduct research uh, at the intersection of human well-being and the environment and uh, publish papers and research and data sets and tools to try and take sustainability solutions from the um, hmm. research bench into actual utilization. How long did you do that for? Uh, just over seven years. Okay. And you were also a foreign, uh, foreign correspondent for a while. I spent the first 15 years of my career uh, reporting on news in East and Southeast Asia. I was based in Taiwan, Hong Kong, Beijing, Seoul, and Manila. And worked for uh, an Asian Newsweek. Uh, it was actually called Asia Week, very similar to Newsweek. And then for Asian France Press, the French news agency, and sure. then ultimately for the Asian Wall Street Journal. So I did a lot of journalism before I came back to the United States and started working in uh, public policy communications. You probably also racked up a heck of a carbon footprint with all the air travel. <laughs> you know, I say that um, in my book because one of the six actions I recommend, uh, one of my key points is personal action is a good place to stop, but don't stop there, um, is uh, fly less or not at all. Most mm. people in the world have never been on airplanes, and the most impactful thing that we do, those of us who do fly, um, in terms of emissions is to fly. So mm -hmm. I have terrible climate karma. If there's climate <laughs> karma, I'm in for a world of woe. <laughs> well, maybe maybe you've addressed that by publishing this book. I, I hope so. Ed. I hope <laughs> you're right. <laughs> yeah, and, and by the way, we, we have had conversations about this on the program recently a couple times because locally uh, there uh, there's a there's a there's a proposal. Well, and it since has been passed to uh, greatly expand the Des Moines Airport. 
And uh, I was surprised and disappointed that that, uh, that, that um, didn't get more conversation here because I, I think there were some clear you know, reasons why uh, we needed to have a broader discussion about it. We did have a, a young man on the, on the program uh, from a, a group called Flight Free USA. And mm-hmm. uh, that conversation inspired me, well, among other things, other reasons inspired me to, to make a pledge not to fly anymore, except for one trip I've got to take to visit my family in Ireland. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a big deal. Uh, so, yeah, that's one thing you talk about in your book is the, the possibility of, you know, the way your carbon footprint can be reduced by, by, by flying less or not at all. But what, what else do you address? Well, I've got several things for personal carbon footprint. Um, I'll list them in a minute. But first, let me say that um, I think some of your listeners may know that the carbon footprint was actually invented by an advertising agency for British Petroleum. Uh And the reason they did that is they want us to all feel personally guilty. Mm. And, uh, you know, I had a conversation with somebody from my religious organization, very progressive woman who knew about my book. And she said, well, you know, I'm really sorry. I can't be a climate advocate because I'm still driving a gasoline car. And that's exactly what they want us to feel, uh, is to feel guilty and uh, therefore not push for system-wide change. So um, personal actions are good, but um, getting organized to press for rapid systemic change, especially in the end of the fossil fuel era, is much more important than anything that we might do. Um, on our individual basis. That's a really, really good point. And you, you, I, I didn't realize that that was a creature of British Petroleum, but I guess I'm not surprised. Uh, but yeah, it's a, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've talked about this too in this program. You can, I, I could do everything I could possibly imagine. I could never drive again, never fly again. I, I could, you know, never I'd just walk everywhere, um, turn the heat down to 45. <laughs> you know, I could, I could do all these crazy things. Well, I would probably end up, end up uh, Divorced, uh, but uh, <laughs> I'm saying that is Kathy's looking at me. Forty-five degrees, but you know, you those things, you you can only go so far because we live in a system that has made it, in, in, you know, impossible to do everything we need to do to address the problem. So, yeah, that's I, exactly right, Ed. And you mentioned, you know, I mentioned climate karma. That I've got very bad carbon for flying, but I also say in the book. You know, we boomers, most of our emissions are behind us in our lives. So uh, to cut back in the last 10 years of our life does nothing. And those emissions are still up there. Right. Um, So, you know, the the carbon footprint is designed to make us feel guilty. Um, It's caught on like crazy, you know, from the New York Times to the EPA, everywhere else. There's all kinds of things for calculating your carbon footprint. But what we really need to do is get organized and push for change. That said, I do have a list of six actions that matter. And if you're interested, yeah, you go back and go over that Let's go list. through them one at a time. Sure. Um, you want me to just read them through or do one and pause? Let's do, yeah, let's take one and pause. Well, the first one, probably well known to you and your listeners, is stop wasting food and eat less meat. Yeah, and uh, wasting food is, is, uh, is it's, it's, uh, it's shameful how much food gets thrown out, especially at restaurants. Um, eating meat, um, I make a distinction there, Lawrence. Uh, to me, uh, eating meat that is raised sustainably is, in some cases, you know, one of the one of the best uh, land uses and one of the uh, the most um, responsible environmental choices. But to me, the it's the problem is the industrial scale production that is, you know, driving all sorts of uh, you know environmental and water quality degradation. And maybe we disagree on that. Well, um, I would agree with you that, I mean, most meat that is produced is produced in industrial scale. You know, for those of us, I still eat meat occasionally. That's why I say eat less meat. And when I do eat meat, I try and uh, whenever possible, you know, humanely artisanal raised meat. But most meat is not like that. And meat is responsible, as you know, for a lot of land degradation a lot of forest clearing, which is itself a source of um, emission. Mm-hmm. And um, it turns out that red meat is much worse than chicken. And I imagine people in Iowa won't like hearing that, but um, <laughs> red meat, because of the methane associated with cattle, yeah. has a very um, high amount of greenhouse gases um, associated with it. And I list them in the order that I do because I, I list things that won't cost you any money, and will probably improve your health or the quality of your life. And not wasting food and eating less meat, okay. therefore, tops the list. What's the uh, second point? 
Se second one, I think you and I will certainly agree on, drive less, walk, bike, and take public transport more. Mm -hmm. um, and again, this is very dependent on the system. If you live in Iowa, there may not be any public transport um, out where you are. Um, but for those of us who live in cities and suburbs, we often have um, options to drive less and walk, bike, and take public transport more. And for each of these, I choose things that if enough people did it, it would make a difference. Yeah. And where doing it can encourage other people to do it by setting an example. That's one thing I've, I've I, for example, I've had pushback on, well, I, I'm not going to fly. Well, you know, you're not flying, Ed. doesn't matter. The plane's still going to leave. Well, sure, it will. But if 10 of us, 20 of us, what's the threshold? 30, 40 of us don't fly, that plane won't leave. Well, and Ed, you're a person with a lot of influence. So if you announce that I'm, you know, no longer going to fly except when I absolutely have to to see family, I'm flying less, that'll cause other people to think about it. Right. Um, people who take no-fly pledges, I think, um, can cause others to give it some thought. Right. Let me move on to number three, move yes. your money. Uh, this is about, you know, making sure that your uh, savings are not invested in fossil fuels, and my book explains um, how people can go about doing that. Um, I want to get beyond personal things, so I might jump to the next one. Yeah, upgrade go for your it. Car, upgrade your car to an EV. Okay. And Install rooftop solar and then fly less or not at all. That's my list, the six. Okay. Yeah, and some of those uh, are costly, rooftop solar, for example. And um, for some people, upgrading to an EV would also be expensive. But, uh, yeah, they're all good. Um, what about... Uh, those are all personal decisions one can make, changes one can make. What about political action? What about being engaged in protests, um, nonviolent action? Are those um, are those actions you discuss and even maybe recommend in your book? Uh, absolutely. And in fact, most of my book is about um, you know taking collective action. The next chapter is called How Can I Work With Others? And I list, uh, I say, use a national organization to find local organizations. And I list groups like um, Third Act, led by Bill McKibben, which I'm active in, um, the Sierra Clay Club, um, Elders Climate Action Network, uh, Chesapeake Climate Action Network. Many of these have uh, local affiliates that are listed on their website. And I encourage people to find a local group that they can affiliate with, get out and meet people, um, subscribe to newsletters and find an organization that uh, whose whose values and language align mm -hmm. with you, and um, and get involved. The next chapter is based is about what's faith got to do with it. And uh -huh. for those of us who are uh, active participants in the faith tradition, I describe how faith based advocacy, especially interfaith advocacy, can be a very powerful lever for change because politicians tend to listen. In fact, I begin with a joke. You know, so a, a rabbi, a uh, a priest, and an Islamic leader walk into a bar, and the bartender says, "What is this? A joke?" Um, okay. People pay attention when you have um, people of different faiths working together to make a difference. And uh, I go through six American religious groups. Every single one of them has top-level statements um, urging protection of the earth, because all religions have at their core um, protecting the poor and protecting the planet, protecting creation. We use different sure. words for this, but the values are the same. Sure, so yet, yet, and yet top-level some... statements, and then there are groups and networks that will organize you, whether you're a Muslim, a member of a black church, an ecumenical Protestant, an evangelical Protestant, a Catholic or a Jew. Right. There's a, there's a group for you where but, you can get involved through your faith. But there are also elements within Christianity, at least, that are radically opposed to any kind of action to protect the environment. Uh, I mean, they, I mean that, that the the concept that climate change is is not real is uh, is rampant in some in some denominations. I think that. Uh, obviously, we have seen a real schism in American public opinion that didn't used to be true. Right. Um, I point to Catherine Hayhoe, who I'm, you and a lot of your listeners sure. may know. Yeah. She is both a climate scientist and an evangelical Christian. And uh, there's also a group called the um, Evangelical Environmental Network mm -hmm. that yep. reaches out and organizes evangelicals for climate action. So there's a group, but they tend not to get a lot of attention. And what I say is... If you're an evangelical Christian and you've read this far in my book, 
do I have a great opportunity for you? Because you know lots of other evangelical Christians. And Catherine Hayhoe would say the one superpower we all have that we're not using is to talk about climate change. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not a part of that community, but uh, any of your listeners who are and are concerned about climate change, I urge them to read that section of my book, to um, okay. read Catherine Hayhoe's great books, and um, organize within your community. Because I think, you know, thinking on this changes over time. And as the climate catastrophe becomes more and more pressing, I think we're going to see more and yeah. more evangelical Christians. We're going to return to the roots of their teaching, which is to care about the poor and to care about creation. So, Lawrence, we've got to wrap up here. So give a, where, where do people go to find a copy of A Boomer's Guide to Climate Action? Um, it's available in lots of places. Um, some of my friends don't like to order from Amazon. That would be me. Uh, but it's, it's, it's on Amazon. It's also at Barnes & Noble. The best thing they can do, really, is to call up or drop into their local bookstore. Um, it's available on bookshop.org and Ingram, all the places that supply mm. independent local bookstores, and order a copy. Right. Or if they don't want to spend the money, ask their library to get a copy. Okay. Um, there, it's 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 in ordinary distribution channels. Um, shouldn't be hard to get a hold of a copy through whatever channel they they like to use. Right. Um, if they Google, um, "Am I too old to save the planet?" or they Google my last my name, MacDonald, M-A-C-D-O-N-A-L-D. They should find lots of places they All can right. get it. Very good. Hey, uh, thank you uh, so much for joining us, Lawrence. Well, thank you for having me on the show. And, uh, you know, I wanted to mention, Ed, how much I've enjoyed your book, Marcher Walker Pilgrim. Thank you. A memoir from the Great March for Climate Action. Thank you. Uh, It's a wonderful uh, book, and I encourage your uh, listeners to get a copy of that, too. Thank you. And and relevant to uh, Veterans Day, I'm going to be uh, sharing a bit from that book later in the program. Hey, again, thanks for joining us, Lawrence. We've been talking with uh, Lawrence McDonald, and we've got to take a quick break. When we come back, another author is going to join us, Dr. Stephen Goldman. We're going to be reflecting on Veterans Day with, uh, with him. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks to all of our sponsors and partners, including Catholic Peace Ministry, an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese. Catholic Peace Ministry focuses on nuclear disarmament, the need for diplomacy in Ukraine, and ending the permanent war economy. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. All right, Dr. Stephen Goldman joins me on the phone now. Dr. Goldman is also the brother of the notorious Charles Goldman, who is my frequent uh, co-host on this program. Uh, Steve has written a book called One More War to Fight, Union Veterans' Battle for Equality Through Reconstruction, Jim Crow, and the Lost Cause. We have talked about this book on the, this program before, and I want to invite uh, Stephen to join us with um, kind of a broader conversation about Veterans Day. And, um, you know, and, and the U.S. military, you know, how, 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 
what is the role of the U.S. military, not just abroad, but in our country right now with, with um, you, know, you know, very real threats to our Constitution? Stephen, welcome to the program. Um, thanks. It's, it's always good to be on with you, Ed. And, uh, you know, it's funny, it's funny you brought that up because um, I was thinking about it for Veterans Day. And one of the things that uh, my wife Kit and I did uh, over the weekend was um, attended one ceremony, and then we went looking for particular uh, cemeteries in uh, Montgomery County here in Maryland. And one of the the cemetery we actually visited and paid tribute to was at uh, the Sandy Spring Meeting House, you know, a Quaker meeting house. And I thought that really exemplified the role that American, particularly American citizen soldiers, have played throughout the history of the United States. And I'll tie that in with what uh, you and I had discussed offline, was I think one of the greatest speeches I've ever heard a high-ranking military officer in the United States ever deliver, and that was General um, McMillie's retirement speech, uh, I guess it was about uh, five, six months, uh, weeks ago. And he so beautifully captured the essence of what it means to be an American soldier, American um, sailor, Marine, uh, Air Force personnel. And his almost entire focus was on the role of the military in relation to the Constitution. And let me uh, let, let me play that for our audience. Uh, it's, it's it's a short clip, uh, about thirty five seconds long. But I think I think it'd be good for us to have that to put some perspective on what you're saying. Here's uh, General Mark Milley's uh, retirement speech. We are unique among the world's armies. We are unique among the world's militaries. We don't take an oath to a country. We don't take an oath to a tribe. We don't take an oath to a religion. We don't take an oath to a king or a queen or to a tyrant or a dictator. And we don't take an oath to a wannabe dictator. We don't take an oath to an individual. We take an oath to the Constitution, and we take an oath to the idea that it's America, and we're willing to die to protect it. That's uh, pretty strong stuff. And the um, not-so-subtle reference to a wannabe dictator, um, I mean... He he came everything. He came just short of saying Donald Trump, don't you think? Uh, well, everybody knew to whom he was referring, and bear in mind he was still on active duty when he gave that uh, retirement speech. Mm-hmm. You know, he was still in uniform. I don't think he crossed the line. But, uh, but he stepped right up to it. <laughs> but he stepped right up to it, yeah. and now, I mean, well, I presume that you took an oath to protect and defend the Constitution when you were in the state legislature, am I correct? Yes. Well, I took the oath twice when I joined the VA and when I went to work for the Health and Human Services. So I took the same oath twice. My grandfather, my father, my brother all took the military oath. And when you do that, when you become responsible for protecting and defending the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Right. It makes you part of something that's the essence of what this country is supposed to be about. The rule of law, equality under the law, um, our representation under the law, and the fact that this is a government of, of people. It's not a government. It's not a monarchy. It's not handed down to to a dynasty. I mean, these concepts it, it need to be constantly reiterated, and of course, that is we're seeing now, maybe more than ever, as we see a threat to this country that I don't think has existed since the Civil War. Right. Very true. Again, my book is about not about. The Civil War itself, it's about what happened when the men came home from the Civil War, white and black, and how they were committed to the things they had fought for in the 50 years after the war. And they extended 
through their responsibility to the United States as veterans, they made good on the promises to the men who did not survive, to themselves as survivors, to those who had been maimed as, as one of my representative cohorts um, that I utilize. And they established this paradigm that continues to this day. And so when I heard General Milley, who knows his history, as so many in the military do, um, it gives you some hope that there are others who do grasp this, who do understand the role of what a military that is civilian control. Let's not forget, the military is not independent. You know, it's under civilian command, you know, through the Department of Defense. But they do, every country is, um, when you look at the military of a country, it tells you a lot about the country itself. And one of the glories of the United States has been its citizen soldiers. And the way they not only have fought the wars they fought, but what they've done in civilian life. Let me ask you this, Steve. So go ahead. So, so the, uh, I mean, I know a lot of veterans personally, who are, you know, yeah, who who would, I think would share, would certainly share General Milley's perspective on, on, protecting the Constitution and guarding against a wannabe dictator, but I, I know plenty of veterans too who are concerned about the overall direction of U.S. foreign policy and see a need for diplomacy, see an increased need for, um, for you know, approaching. Conflict, you know, with with a, with a, with tactics that don't involve necessarily, you know, flexing military might, and um, you know, the, the group Veterans for Peace. We we had somebody from that group on this program earlier this year. Uh, Veterans for Peace is involved with a um, a ship called uh, the Golden Rule, and it's uh, it's uh, sailing from the upper reaches of the Mississippi down to the Gulf of Mexico, around the U.S. East Coast up into the St. Lawrence, St. Lawrence Seaway um, to, with the message that, you know, we, we need to move beyond trying to resolve conflicts ultimately with nuclear weapons, which we still have, you know, very frightening arsenals of. So what, what's your take on those voices within our veterans community that are trying to focus on non-military solutions to dealing with conflict? I, but this is very much in line with what I'm saying, Ed, because one of the things that, constantly occurs after wars is, and this has gone back, this goes back to the Civil War, and it certainly continues, is the fear people have of veterans, who, particularly those who have been in combat, who have been to war, because they've killed. I mean, that's what you do in war, and that's been a taboo for, for you know, centuries about not discussing that. Hmm. And People were terrified of the Union veterans because there were so many of them. And they've been away from home. They've been away from the constraints of the civilization. And, of course, what almost all the research has shown throughout the, you know, the decades ever since is that veterans, if anything, are much less prone to violence. Because once you've seen what they've seen, mm-hmm. life becomes precious. There's so also... That this, is, this is very much in line with what you're saying right. is... You don't, just because you've been to war and have fought brilliantly in war, it doesn't mean that you're going to use war as a solution when you return to peacetime. One doesn't necessarily follow the other. And I think what, what General Milley was making extremely clear was that the might and glory of the American veteran and the American military has been the attempt to utilize its power not to dominate globally, but to use its power of moral suasion to only use military force when absolutely needed. Mm. And certainly Vietnam taught us that. So I, I, I think what you're saying is very much in line with the stuff I'm saying. Yeah, and, but you know, I, and, and I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a, an actual pacifist. Uh, <laughs> I believe that there are limited times when there is no option except for military engagement. But honestly, the last time I think that that, uh, that last war that made any sense to me at all was World War II. And, 
everything since then, to me, has been either an act of aggression uh, or, you know, a misguided approach to dealing with a problem that could have been dealt with otherwise. And I, I don't know if that, uh, if that, that opinion would be too extreme within um, veteran circles, but yeah, you know, I again, I, yeah, Vietnam certainly was um, that that didn't turn out very well for, for anybody. Well, Afghanistan but, but didn't either. Interesting, but when you go back to Vietnam, uh, for example, David Halberstam, Halberstam supported the war when he first started reporting it for the Times. Vietnam War. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, people forget that when they started out as advisors, before it became a full blown war, there was a lot of support for it. And of course, one of the great turning points was when. The Vietnam veterans against the war, you know, headed by John Kerry and others, mm-hmm. they they carried so much moral suasion along with the, the peace movement that occurred in terms of that. Um, so I don't I don't think that's necessarily different. But there were it wasn't just World War Two. I mean, certainly the Civil War is unique in history for a war that started out with one stated aim, which was maintaining the Union. And ended up with another, frankly, more remarkable aim of freeing four million enslaved people. There was no war like that in human history. Hmm. And that changed during the war itself. And the Union soldier had a lot to do with it. How do you account for such a radical shift in focus during the middle of a conflict? Because war is radicalizing. I mean, we have seen this in American history time and time again. And particularly, and it's usually been related to race. Hmm. Uh, World War I, uh, great example of that. African-American soldiers were treated like human beings and men when they fought in France. They returned to the United States after World War I to Jim Crow, and right. there were race riots. Right, right. Leading to, as you know, one of the most repressive eras under the Pomerades and others because of that. World War Two. The Tuskegee Airmen, one of the finest units in the in the Army Air Corps, and their officers, and I'm, you may be aware that they were refused admission to an officers' club right. when they returned, and there was almost a riot over it because they weren't going to take it. And yeah. what does Truman do? Against the advice and support of the military, Truman desegregates the armed forces. The military did not support the uh, military being being, being desegregated. He did his executive order. Now we see that the military is now one of the real examples of diversity hmm. and advancement. And, um, and, and it's, you know, it's not that, that's not that long ago. Yeah. And, um, you know, th- th- there's much to admire in that. That is in no way, and believe me, I'm not advocating for war as a solution. I'm not advocating it, but there are times... You know, there used to be there used to be a theory in Civil War history that the Civil War could have been prevented. It really couldn't, because the roots of the Civil War were actually generated when slavery was included in the Constitution. Hmm. It wasn't called slavery, as you know. Right. They used yeah. every euphemism against it. Sure. Yeah. But that that laid the foundation for the Civil War. Yeah. Well, uh, we got to run to a break, Stephen. I really appreciate you joining us, and again. Uh, Stephen does a lot of work uh, relevant to this conversation and uh, probably the best way to get uh, familiar with his perspective, which I think is unique and very um, insightful, is to check out his book, One More War to Fight, Union Veterans Battle for Equality Through Reconstruction, Jim Crow and the Lost Cause. Uh, And you can check out my website. (laughs) Oh, that's right. Uh, um, Stephen, that's with a P-H-A-GoldmanMD.com and information and um, including a couple of the podcasts that you and I have done and people can find out more about it there. All right. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me as always. Folks, we've got to take a short break and when we come back, I'm going to share some perspectives from my experience on the Great March for Climate Action at Fort Garland, Colorado and also from my walk with Steve Martin from Omaha Beach on Armistice Day, Veterans Day in 2015, to Paris for the UN Climate Summit. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Years ago, Chef George Fromaro envisioned a new market to house all his favorite foods under one roof in the heart of Des Moines. From that vision, Gateway Market was born. Over the years, Gateway has become Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. 
Gateway's welcoming environment in downtown's Sherman Hill neighborhood encourages discovery and honors the simple pleasures of the table. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, experience the good food difference at Gateway Marketing Cafe. Catholic Peace Ministry was founded in 1981 to work for peace and justice. It's an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese and is guided by an ecumenical board representing many faith traditions. CPM focuses on the urgency of nuclear disarmament and the need for diplomacy in Ukraine. CPM also provides an educational forum about the permanent war economy, which must be challenged if we are to achieve lasting peace and justice. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks to our sponsors, including Western Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. So, I wrote about my experience of visiting Fort Garland on the Great March for Climate Action. Uh, you know, again, roughly 50 of us, it, it varied, the number varied depending on the week, but roughly 50 of us walked from LA to DC over the course of eight months. And we stayed in all kinds of places, uh, open fields, public parks, uh, churches, um, a, a, a parking lot owned by a mosque once. Uh, I, I can't even begin to tell you all the different types of places we stayed. Once, and only once, did we stay on the grounds of a military facility, and this was Fort Garland in Colorado. I wrote about that in my book, and I'm going to share the chapter with you. Um, it's chapter 21 of Marcher Walker Pilgrim. I start out with a quote from General George Patton. Quote, the Russians are a scurvy race and simply savages. We could beat the H-E-double-L out of them, end quote. Uh, and that is a horrible quote, <laughs> but I thought a really appropriate way to start this chapter. I was never at peace with my dad over the issue of war. He worked for the Department of Defense in the Shipping and Handling Division. He never talked about what he shipped and handled, except when he helped transport a 59-foot Douglas fir across the country to replace the aging mass of the USS Constitution. Otherwise, the details of his work remained a mystery. What's he do, I once asked a high school friend, load bombs on boats bound for Southeast Asia? War terrified me from an early age. I first learned about Vietnam when I was six. I'd lie in bed, paralyzed by fear at the roar of jet engines being tested, at General Electric, two miles away. I thought the Vietnamese were coming to kill us. Mom tried to reassure me that there was nothing to worry about. The noise came from the factory where she and my dad used to work, where they'd met, in fact. It was a good place, nothing to be scared of. She made no mention of the napalm being dropped that night on sleeping Vietnamese children by planes powered by those very engines. Like most Americans in the early 1960s, Mom dutifully swallowed the anti-communist propaganda, ignoring the occasional images of truth and horror that slipped through the pro-war ideologue's shield of deceit. Growing up, I don't recall ever discussing war with my parents, but Dad's pride in all things military was regularly on display. It was a given that my two brothers and I would one day serve in the U.S. Army. At age nine, I beamed with pride as Dad stood me in front of him admired my straight shoulders, and said how sharp I'd look when standing at attention in my army uniform. Dad had a limited selection of records, most of them collections of tunes glorifying military conquest, Battle Hymn of the Republic, The Cason Song, Battle of New Orleans, Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture, that sort of thing. He played them so often I could sing or hum along with most of the music. When I was 12, the movie Patton came out, and Dad and I went to see it. 
in what felt like a rite of passage in preparation for my inevitable entry into the armed forces. The Vietnam War was growing unpopular with more and more Americans, and Patton was part of the propagandist's effort to shore up support. Mostly, the film depicts the glories of armed combat, though Patton's belligerence was impossible to conceal. Dad came away praising a brilliant military strategist. I felt like I'd just watched a demented madman orchestrate three hours of carnage and slaughter. If the intention of this father-son outing had been to nurture my enthusiasm for joining the Army, it achieved the opposite result. As my 18th birthday and the requirement to register for military service approached, I considered two options, conscientious objection or moving to Ireland. Remarkably, on the very day that I turned 18, mandatory registration was eliminated. Two days into Colorado, at the base of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, we camp at Fort Garland, established in 1858 to protect white settlers from the Utes. Like most frontier stockades, Fort Garland's functional life was brief, about 25 years, just long enough to subjugate the indigenous population. The fort is now a museum. It would also be the only military facility to provide a campsite for us during the march. We pitch our tents on the parade grounds where troops once gathered before heading out to complete the forcible theft of the Utes' land. On our rest day, I take time off from the march to tour the grounds of the fort. I talk with museum director Anita McDaniel. At a time in U.S. history when Native culture and spirituality are on the rise, I'm curious how she feels about the fort's role in conquering the Utes. The fort's history is more important because it tells the story of Western expansion, Anita says. It's a rich history and we're developing interpretation which brings indigenous and Hispanic points of view into the story, not just the European Anglo-American version. Since Fort Garland never saw any actual conflict, our story isn't so much about war, but about people. I ask Anita if Anglo-America is doing a better job with native relations today. And she replies, I'd like to think we are. One thing I wanted to do when I became director was to see the fort become a place of reconciliation where other viewpoints are expressed and discussed in a respectful and safe environment. Yes, America needs reconciliation at both the cultural and personal level. I think back to my relationship with Dad. Here was a career military man, a sergeant in the Army who went on to work in the private sector, and then with the Department of Defense. Here was his son, detesting war and working in the peace movement, perhaps subconsciously trying to amend for the perceived damage done by his father. Over time, some reconciliation between us did happen, but it was Dad who initiated it, and in ways I did not expect. In my early 20s, I became a vegetarian. I thought Dad might malign my decision, Instead, he experimented with being a vegetarian himself for a week. When I began to work in the peace movement, I thought he'd be critical. Instead, Dad was supportive, insisting that he and I were both working for peace in our own way. At age 61, Dad was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, a cancer which very few survive. The cancer stemmed from exposure to radiation, which, while he was stationed in California, he and other soldiers were instructed to, quote, play games with the massive radar device under their charge. Soldiers would stand in front of the radar and try to jam it with their bodies, simulating Russian planes attacking the West Coast. I could only imagine how much radiation soldiers were subjected to in this game. Dad was never bitter at the U.S. Army for causing the cancer that killed him, but I was. And I tried for years working with Iowa Senator Tom Harkin to get information. I wanted to know what happened to the other men stationed with Dad. I wanted to know if the U.S. Army consciously exposed soldiers to deadly doses of radiation. I wanted to know how many other American soldiers suffered similar fates. Despite my persistence and the involvement of a U.S. Senator, the Army effectively stonewalled us. In the end, they gave Dad $117 a month compensation for hearing loss. Dad was satisfied. He felt our concerns had at least been heard and the money was appreciated. 
I felt like a murderer had just declared his innocence against overwhelming evidence to the contrary. Dad fought hard against cancer, living eight years longer than doctors said he would. Toward the end, there wasn't much left to him. He shrunk by over a foot and dropped 75 pounds. Through it all, he never lost his sense of humor, nor his willingness to seek understanding and reconciliation. In the last year of his life, my transgender niece came to Dad to explain that she was no longer his grandson, but his granddaughter. My niece showed great courage in doing that, given that she was treated horribly by her father and some of her male cousins. She must have been terrified at how my dad would respond, yet all he said was, it doesn't matter, either way, I'm still your grandfather. During our two days at Fort Garland, surrounded by cannons, guns, and all manner of war memorabilia, I think about dad. I reflect on some of the hardest days of the march, the deluge in Los Angeles, crossing the Mojave Desert, the blizzard on the high plateau of Arizona. The realization comes to me that Dad has been with me the whole time, present in the wood from the living forest that created my walking stick and his coffin. Yes, he's been with me on this march to this great adventure, this self-sacrifice for a life-and-death cause. He's pushing me forward with every stride, encouraging me to do something big, something important. 140 years after the soldiers at Fort Garland oversaw the theft of the Ute people's land and the attempted destruction of their culture and heritage, Anita, the museum's director, works to build bridges between cultures that once clashed. Today, at a former military stockade on the edge of the Rocky Mountains, I feel that my journey toward reconciliation with Dad is finally complete. Here at Fort Garland, I cry for my father, for a life cut short, for a life I never got to know as well as I should have. I cry for the many times I failed to embrace his attempts at reconciliation. If I could pick one day of this 246-day march where he could join me in the flesh, it would be tomorrow when we set out from Fort Garland and plunge into the 14,000-foot peaks to our north. As we muster on the parade grounds, I would pose with him for a photo in front of the fort. I would let him use my walking stick. Let him feel its power captured within those grains of wood, tender to perfection by monks whose every act was a prayer. I would tell my father that even though my disdain for war is as strong now as ever, I am proud of what he did in the service of our country. I respect his passion for peace, the same peace I fought for as an activist. I thank him for being a fighter and commend him for the dignity and composure he maintained as he battled cancer for so long way too long, longer than I would ever have had the courage to endure. That's a reading from uh, my book, Marcher, Walk, a Pilgrim, and I think a reading appropriate to Veterans Day and the week that we, uh, that we are in right now. I want to share one more uh, reading from you, and this is a short one. This is from my 2015 walk from Omaha Beach in France, to Paris for the UN Climate Summit. Uh, Steve Martin and I did that in 2015. And Steve Martin was one of my companions on the Great March for Climate Action in 2014. And then in the fall of 2015, we set out on Veterans Day from Omaha Beach. And uh, we took us two weeks to arrive in Paris, walking about 200 miles, maybe three weeks. Yeah, three weeks, I guess. But here's what I wrote uh, after that first day. Today was hard. Steve and I hadn't realized that the shops and most restaurants would be closed on Armistice Day. Our food consisted of meager amounts of nuts, dried fruit, and cheese. Our only meal came at sunset from a fast food joint, striving to compete with the worst possible American swill dispensary. Despite being famished, I could barely choke down the dry burger, and I simply gave up on the soggy fries. Halfway through today's journey, my legs announced that they did not appreciate 15-mile walks. The unexpectedly brisk pace didn't help. Normandy's daylight is scant in November, and one does not walk the narrow, windy roads after dark. We had started late in order to spend time at the Normandy American Cemetery and Memorial. I explained our mission to the staff, and they, were, they, and they enthusiastically approved of the urgency of climate action. They also understood the connection between the sacrifices made in World War II and the sacrifices needed to battle the climate crisis. 
One told me that the earth does not need us, we need the earth. I thought of that as Steve and I walked over ground that, 70 years ago, had been ravished badly, sacrificially, in the struggle to liberate Europe from fascism. Yes, it was a hard day. My hamstrings screamed at me to stop. But as we passed reminders of the hardships faced by Allied soldiers in 1944, our walk from Omaha Beach to Paris felt like a Sunday stroll in comparison. I imagined landing there in 1944, struggling to fight my way through the pounding surf under heavy artillery fire, dead and wounded men piling up around me. What a hell on earth that must have been, and what tremendous levels of courage and heroism must have been needed to get through it. We walked through Long and saw the still-evident scars of a town bombed by Allied forces to root out Nazi troops. For the residents of that town, witnessing the destruction must have required courage and heroism, knowing that they were being liberated even as their homes were being flattened. Our host for the night, the first two nights, Amy Swanson Solomon, heard about our walk from a friend. I hadn't met Amy until she greeted us at the train station. I asked what had inspired her to offer such amazing hospitality to two guys she didn't even know. And she said, the act of crossing the Atlantic and walking in foreign territory seemed like a heroic act to me, explained Amy. I knew we would be offering you some protection, some much-needed assistance. Amy said that if she had had more time, she would have encouraged churches to ring their bells as we came through town. November 11 marks the end of World War I, she said. On that day, the bells rang in all of France. In my mind, I have always connected that with the slow, quiet act of walking. While I appreciated Amy's kind offer, I confessed relief that churches were not ringing their bells as we came through town. That would have felt distinctly immodest, even if what we were doing was seen as heroic by her and others. That said, for humanity to successfully address the climate crisis, acts of heroism are demanded of all of us, individually and collectively. Small acts from those who can do small things, larger acts from those who are able to do big things. Perhaps this walk is a notable act of heroism in response to the climate crisis. I don't know. What I do know is that for me, this walk feels like the most significant thing I can do to push for a positive outcome from COPE21. This walk will continue to be difficult, yet so far, as my steps lead across the fields, beaches, and towns of Normandy, I am reminded that this journey is so much easier than what others were called to do in response to the crisis of their time. All right, folks, that's a couple readings for you relevant to Veterans Day from what I've written in the past. We're going to take a short break. When we come back in a minute, Kathy Burns will join me. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks again to our sponsors, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Marketing Cafe. Hey, Kathy Burns is with me, and uh, Burns on Birds, we're talking about... Uh, Chickens and avian flu. The avian flu. We always hear about it a lot in spring and fall, especially in Iowa, because Iowa is the largest egg-producing state 
in the nation. And a pretty big turkey and chicken producing state as a well. A lot of poultry yeah. in, in this uh, state and across the U.S., of course. But um, when the avian flu is being reported, a lot of people want to use that as a reason that cities should not allow backyard flocks. And we're going to talk about how ridiculous that is. How ridiculous is it? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, if you look at the numbers, the uh, CDC has reported as of November 8th that in 2023, the total f- number of flocks reported with avian flu and needing to be culled for that reason is 894 flocks. That's a lot, huh? And that also equates to even more birds. Nationwide, more than 61 million birds that have uh, been culled because of avian flu. But if you look at flocks of birds, uh, 30 birds or fewer, there were 212 flocks reported. That's roughly 24% of the total flocks. But that only accounts to fewer than 3,900 birds, and that is roughly 0.0064% of the total birds. Right. So it, it's still, um, I mean, you're still going to get arguments. Well, that's, that's enough to be of concern because, you know, you get one, one flock, one backyard flock gets uh, sick and then the others get sick. But it doesn't really work that way, does it? It doesn't work that way at all. It's, uh, the avian flu is, uh, is caused by a highly infectious virus. One strain of it is highly infectious. And it is caused by m- migrating birds, mostly. Uh, also by uh, global trade of birds, with uh, one flock there being you know, affected and uh, affecting another space where they go. Hmm. And also sometimes by farm machinery going from one flock to another. But backyard birds don't really get moved around like that. They yeah. get in your backyard. They don't go visiting other flocks. It's not like take your flock to visit the neighbor flock. Dave. And we haven't traded ours for other birds in, say, Albania in a long time. <laughs> well, it's been yeah, days and days since we've traded in Albania. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> no, but, but the, the uh, yeah, and, and one, one, I mean, in, in Des Moines, there are, what, 300? I just estimating two or 300 flocks. I, I would a, guess. There's a lot of chickens in Des Moines. I would guess, yeah. And, and you know, they aren't partying together at night. They aren't, <laughs> they aren't, they aren't going out and uh, spreading, you know, avian flu amongst each other. They're, They're pretty only, much confined. There are only two very, you know, small flocks that I wouldn't even classify as backyard flocks having been reported in Iowa this year. Um, one was in Jones County of 23, quote, backyard chickens. Uh, that's, that's pretty that big could be a backyard, for, for a backyard chicken. flock. But big. in Guthrie County, a, a flock of 50 birds um, was somehow labeled as backyard. 50 <laughs> birds affected with the avian flu that had to be culled. 50 birds to me is, yeah. you know, if you're on the edge of Guthrie County, that might be your backyard, and that would be a big backyard. But, <laughs> but people are calling their own birds responsibly and not letting their birds go fly around and visit the other birds. So that's really the key. Yeah. It's a problem when you've got so many, I mean, 61 million animals being destroyed because of mm-hmm. the flu being spread. I mean, again, largely by migrating birds. So you, mm-hmm. you mentioned some other causes, but, you know, how do, um, I don't know what the long-term solution to this is. I mean, and I'm Smaller not, flocks. Yeah, okay, smaller <laughs> flocks. I, I was going to say, other, other than changing the way the industry works, you know. Right. Decentralizing production. Well, and there's a lot of cruelty involved in those huge operations as well. It's uh, mm. they're packed in. They don't get to walk about. They get and, debeaked you know, as well. They get their they beaks do. clipped it's off. A, you know. Yeah, you don't. It's a it's a it's a vicious little little setting. Yeah. Well, so maybe maybe avian flu is God's way of saying, hey, we're gonna we're gonna uh, we're gonna encourage you to come up with a different model for egg and poultry production. Either way, we need a different model. All right. Hey, Kathy, thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm. Hey, folks, thanks for tuning into today's program. Thanks to our guests today, Lawrence McDonald and Dr. Stephen Goldman, and to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks also to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, and Western Optometry. And thanks to our nonprofit partners, Catholic Peace Ministry, Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility, Bold Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And of course, thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for our bumper music. Back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio. I can't seem to face up to the facts. I'm tense and nervous and I can't relax. This Colonel Sanders job is getting me down. 
A crazy chicken chasing me all over town. A psycho chicken 